started. I've been, uh, I've been at UCLA for uh, a very more than 40 years. I, I worked at both uh, UCLA where I run the psychosis program and, uh, and, and at the VA. I uh, have done research for many years and I also continue to see uh, people with psychotic illnesses in a, in a clinic that I run at uh, UCLA. Although my experiences uh, in the setting in this sort of uh, sterile looking clinic may be very different than yours, uh, I think the people are the same, the challenges are the same. So, let me tell you how I planned this talk, which was a, a little bit uh, where I've left a, a lot of time for discussion. Um, I thought I would give you sort of a, an overview of psychotic illnesses, a uh, talk about what, what treatments have an evidence base, uh, why it's important to get people into remission when they're psychotic, so that there's sort of a, uh, a goal in treatment. Uh, I'll talk about antipsychotic side effects. And then I wanted to talk about the challenges in engaging people with psychosis and how to shape a relationship with a patient who really doesn't want to deal with you uh, and is not interested in the help that you're giving. Um, do those, are there any of those topics that you think I should start with that seem most compelling here? What? Number five. Okay. Let me go right, right to that, and, and, and then I, if we have time, if you're interested, I could talk about the available antipsychotic drugs and what works. But uh, I, okay, so let me let me start out with uh, just just the way that I view the dilemma, because when you treat someone with psychosis, you know this isn't like treating an infection; it's something that you're, whatever you do set the stage, sets the stage for what happens after. And, and here's a story about, uh, I don't know how many of you know these two people. I think many of you do. Ellen Sachs is a, uh, she's a professor in the law school of, uh, at, at USC. Uh, she's done very well. She writes in her book how she lives every day with schizophrenia. Uh, Nathaniel Ayers is the uh, man who was the uh, focus of, of the book and the movie The Soloist. Um, both of them started off their lives as very promising individuals. Um, Ellen Sachs, uh, before she became psychotic, she was actually top of her class at uh, Vanderbilt. Uh, and uh, she uh, became psychotic when she was uh, overseas at, uh, in England at Oxford, Oxford, Cambridge. Uh, and her life has gone very differently than Nathaniel Ayers, who was a very promising cellist at the Juilliard School in New York. And uh, he received uh, a treatment at Bellevue, received antipsychotics, ECT, and his life has gone very differently. And so, so these are two very promising people. 
And, and there are so many differences between them that uh, register on one who uh, uh, there's the issue of race, there, there's the issue of access to care. Uh, but the point that I want to make is that uh, Ellen Sachs got rich psychosocial treatment. That, uh, she was welcomed into treatment. Uh, Nathaniel Ayers uh, was uh, put on holes, treated involuntarily, uh, and never wanted psychiatric treatment. He has never accepted uh, treatment. Her life, I think she's married, I think they think of as having a successful life. Nathaniel Ayers has been either homeless or hospitalized, and although a man of enormous gifts, those have been sort of wasted. Uh, and my argument is that there were things that happened early on when somebody tried to engage them in treatment that I think made all the difference. And, uh, and, and I find, you know, you know sort of uh, something interesting, okay? So I'm going to move forward to the, my uh, issue of challenges. One of the dilemmas that uh, I often see, and these are people who come into my clinic and, and people who I think before I was at UCLA treating outpatients, I ran a, a ward at the VA for decades. Uh, uh, many people don't accept uh, psychotic illnesses, don't think that they need treatment. They think it's somebody else's problem. Uh, they, uh, their parents, people around them want to get treatment. The police, you know, might, might talk about them being on the street or uh, acting strangely, but they think that there's nothing wrong. Uh, and so what's the goal? Well, in, in my uh, opinion, the goal when you engage people early is to help them take ownership of their illness. Uh, have, have any of you had an experience where, because uh, I've had it many times, where somebody who um, was resistant treatment for years, uh, every time they get on medications, they would actually improve substantially. And then they would say they don't need it, and, and they would stop it. And then, all at once, something clicks. And uh, they say, uh, this isn't, this is my life, and I need to take care of myself, and that includes taking medications, even though they make me feel terrible. Uh, uh, so the goal is to have that person take ownership of their illness and participate in, in, in treatment. And so, so what are the, what do you do when someone's not interested in, in, in treatment? Well, my, uh, I, I, I have, you know, you know, three rules that I, I, I kind of learned to follow. Uh, if the person doesn't believe that they're psychotic, that they have an illness, uh, and you're trying to convince them, illness, this is, it's so different than a do uh, when you're treating depression, because people with depression, they feel terrible, and they come to you for treatment. Uh, with many of these psychotic patients, they don't feel that way. They don't ask you to treat their suspiciousness. They don't ask you to treat their bizarre behavior. Uh, 
On the other hand, uh, I think every psychotic person is suffering at some level and would like their life to get better. Uh, I mean, I, I think that's you know, a principle that I operate under. And, and my belief is that the first thing that I try to do is to align the person's goals with what, uh, with mine. So that the patient understands that my goal is not to make them less suspicious or less psychotic. Uh, it's to, uh, that they want to live independently, that they want an apartment, that they want to uh, have a car or a girlfriend or have friends, or they, uh, you know, they're tired of living on the street. Uh, that is, if I can align the person, uh, you know, the person with those goals, then I, then treatment isn't the goal. Then treatment is the way to get there. That uh, to have the patient appreciate that it's only when they're on on a medication, or that they're uh, seeing uh, a clinician, or getting you know cognitive behavior therapy, whatever is helping them, that that is the uh, vehicle to reach some other goal. That that's not <coughs> the point. Now, so you approach someone, and they're suspicious. Uh, and they think that you have some kind of ulterior motive, you sort of represent, you're, you're put together with the police and their parents and other people who use them. How do you deal with that? Uh, it, it's, as you probably know, you can't reason with suspiciousness. It's a, it's a feeling, it's an approach, it's not something you could say, well, I find, I you know, you, you, you could try to explore what gives them the idea that you're hostile or, 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 or dangerous. But uh, my, what we try to do when we deal with these people is to just give them the impression that you'll be there for them. If they don't want to talk to you today, you'll be back tomorrow. Uh, and to have them see that you're reliable and, and trustworthy and that the way that you talk to them is sometimes more important than what you say. You know, it's, it's the music, not the words. It's the, uh, it's, it's the sounds that you do. Because if you get up the idea that you're going to reason the matter of suspiciousness, it's just unlikely to work. It's really the way you, you treat them with respect, with... Uh, Honoring their wishes, uh, listening to them, and, and, and being you know non-judgmental uh, can help dealing with it. But it's it's extraordinarily challenging. I, I don't need to dismiss that. And then the person who tells you that uh, you know every time they've seen a psychiatrist, the person's been a jerk. They uh, treated them with medications that made them feel worse. They didn't care. You know, you know they had bad experiences with uh, treatment. You know, how rare is that? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, so, you know, you know the, uh, then I think it's uh, one of the goal is, goals, uh, goals is to help that person uh, communicate with their prescribers. That, uh, you know, I think you have to give the impression 
you know, you know, you can't defend the system because some of these people probably have not been treated well. You know, they probably been put on holds and people didn't listen to them and things like that. You, you can't defend a healthcare system that sometimes treats people badly. But what you can do is help them communicate with what their what their fears are, what what the feeling was on medication that made them worse, so that next time when they get treatment, and maybe they will, and maybe it'll be involuntary or voluntary, that they're prepared to um, sort of uh, interact better. I believe that uh, the mere fact that you're interested yeah. in what they're thinking, they can get a lot of that. And, uh, you, know, you know, one of the, uh, Ellen Sachs has this wonderful book called, called The Center Cannot Hold, and what, uh, and Pledge of Great, I, I've learned a lot from it, but, but one of the things that she says that I find so meaningful is that when a psychiatrist, uh, psychoanalyst, actually understood, wanted to understand what she was thinking and feeling, uh, that that in itself was just a tremendous relief. So I think if you could do that, and maybe in the process, as they kind of look back at uh, how they formed the ideas, that, that maybe they'll see that it's a little, doesn't, it doesn't really make sense. Somebody who, you know, uh, is, is homeless and uh, feels unsafe or, uh, I, I, I forget what words we Yeah, the government's out to get them and, and things like that. And, and, and to me, the way I would try to relate to that person is how difficult it is to be unsafe and, and to be out in the world and feel unsafe and then to try to find out what to, what's happening you know and and again I, I think the process of somebody being interested and caring about how they feel rather than just getting them into treatment can be therapeutic and, and, and again I, I think you probably I don't know, do people have the experience that you see people and they refuse treatment over and over again? You know, I, I think that the work you do on each episode, if they still refuse, it's not lost because the fact that you come back, you know, you know helps build rapport, which again, is hard to do with these people. So I, I, what I'll do is try to relate to the fact of that person feeling unsafe, uh, that I can understand. And, uh, and, and, and to build a rapport, and again, you know, if that person's goal is not to be homeless, uh, to, that that is the goal of, of engagement. I'm, I'm, I'm going to go back and talk. Uh, do many of you deal with uh, first episodes? A, a person who's in there, you know, you know, you know, you know, they're just psychotic. For the, well, let me let me raise this. Uh, how many of you have been, been dealing with? Uh, I imagine a lot of. Patients are using cannabis. Yeah. Okay. So, so what do you what do you tell them? Uh, they're using cannabis. That now what we know is that the prevalence of cannabis is very high in people with schizophrenia. The problem is when somebody smokes cannabis, if you tell them it's going to make you worse, and every time they take they, they use it, they feel better, at least temporarily. 
you, know, you know, you lose credibility, uh, which is really something you want to preserve, right? Uh, and yet, the uh, people have, uh, and you know, the last slide, you know, you know, what you want to avoid at all costs is to not sound like their parents. Uh, and um, on the other hand, uh, there, there's evidence of young people with a genetic vulnerability who, who, bits, who become psychotic on cannabis need to stop. You know, and treatment is going to be very, very difficult uh, while they're using cannabis. Um, so what I try to do, and, and it's really hard because it's, uh, one is, is I emphasize, and this is a hard message to give, you're different than your friends. You know, you know your friends smoke cannabis and they, and their lives are going fine. I don't know if these are, are your people. But uh, you, you, you have an illness which makes cannabis bad for you. And the other thing is to align them with their goals. And if the goal is getting a job and you know, it's a woman who wants to uh, get married and have children and things like that, uh, so she's using on cannabis, the uh, giving up, there has to be a benefit of giving up cannabis and it has to go beyond the short-term goal of feeling better. Uh, that's the way I, I deal with it. Anybody have any other uh, thoughts? Um, you know, it's the same with, you know, you know, if it's meth or, uh, you know, a stimulant or uh, excessive alcohol, uh, the only way, you, you can't tell people that this makes you worse when it temporarily makes you feel better. But you, you sort of need to align with the fact that their lives aren't going very well. And, you know, they've been hospitalized three times, they've been... Uh, They've lost jobs, you know, you know, whatever opportunities. So let me talk about uh, medications for a minute. So I'm talking specifically about psychosis and antipsychotic medications. Almost everybody who takes an antipsychotic, if they're psychotic, will have some benefit. You know, it's uh, it's very rare that they take medications and it doesn't make them less psychotic. Uh, the problem is, every antipsychotic has side effects. If you did a popularity contest for drugs, you know, probably antipsychotics would be like way at the bottom. Uh, you know, you know so, so you're trying to convince people to take a drug that, has, that doesn't make them feel better, at least initially, uh, and uh, how to do it. And, and again, it's to, to try to uh, you know, the problem is you start an antipsychotic, you feel a little worse, maybe for a day or two, and then the symptoms begin to go away. So what I do is that is I try to prepare patients for how the medications are going to make them feel better, to give them uh, a sort of reason to take them. And my experience is that uh, they sort of the symptoms that have been bothering them. Are, are likely to become less disturbing. The voices, hopefully they'll go away entirely, but if they're hostile, they'll become more friendly, they'll, they'll be, uh, sometimes they get to the level of uh, voices that one can live with. 
Uh, and the thing is, when you're better, and people are suggesting you do things, then you you try to meet a woman and you get rejected. You try to get a job and you get to, you know, you, you know, so all at once. And the people stopped it because they were more comfortable in a, in a world where no one expected anything of them. Uh, and uh, I'm not saying we should accept that, but we should understand it, that it's, uh, that, that for some people there's kind of a fear uh, that, that comes of getting better and sort of, and I, I don't know, maybe, I suspect that many of you deal with homeless people living on the street who don't, they don't have any goal or other thing that they want to do. I, I don't know how you would also. I, I have a, uh, actually it's a, it's a whole talk I gave about that. It sounds up with this question, you know, uh, it's doctor, well, well, I need to be on these medications, but well, I need to stay on the drugs for the rest of my life because the patient doesn't realize it. And the only thing I, I tell them is, and some of them may insist on stopping medications, I, I try to get them to sort of uh, learn about themselves, uh, about what, it, what, what the world is like when they're on medication, when they're off, and, and, and how things are different. Um, it, it's, I mean, people have tried all kinds of tricks. They've, uh, you, know, you, you know, they used to develop contracts with them that if they begin to become like this, it's going to be Ulysses contracts, you know, where you would, uh, you know, they would agree to be hospitalized. I, I, I don't know that they, it was always a good idea that no one ever, that probably didn't work. But I, I, I don't have a solution except that if you, that people can learn and that they can learn what they need and to, um, and, and then to trust other people to talk to them about their experience and so that, um, you, you know, that that's helpful. I agree with that, you know, you know, you know if you frame it as a, uh, as you have this illness and that's what it is, I, I, I mean, that's, more often not helpful than uh, how your thought, you know, understanding how your mind works and how drugs and how supports and how, you know, getting psychotherapy from, uh, and rehabilitation can, can help it. You know, you know uh, I, years ago we used to have this idea that if you told people that they had schizophrenia, everybody would feel relieved and, and that, that was Completely. I, I've given that up. I never tell anybody that they have schizophrenia. Uh, what? Uh, it's just not useful. It's got so much stigma attached to it. So what does it tell? I I try to you know you know I, I do use the word psychosis that uh, you know their reality gets distorted. They they hear voices. I use the term psychosis, but I I don't think it provides any useful information to say that they have schizophrenia because it's so, uh, it's so stigmatized, I wish they would just come up with a better word. First of all, it's, it's important to know that you can't control everything with medication. You know, sometimes you, you get to a point where the person has had all these medications, they, you know, gain weight, they feel miserable, they, they, they are more, uh, Sometimes closure will make a big difference, but uh, 
you know, then the goal begins, you know, you know, to say, okay, we've gone as far as we can. Now it's how can you live with these experiences? Now, now your person may not do that, uh, but uh, you know, you know, whether or not there, there are, uh, you know, psychotherapies, there are a number of, of sort of approaches. All of them kind of work. They all require a kind of willingness of the person to question their symptoms. You know, you know to question if he really believes that these voices are coming from the gaps. That, does he believe all the time that they're coming from this other source? That they're real? He believes, he refers to them as voices, but they're real. And yeah. like, I don't, I don't think it, it's really hard to follow, honestly. Um, I don't even know. Yeah, you know, so I, I, I can tie it up, you know, as a psychiatrist who, who like, you know, you know, I try drugs all the time, but, you know, I get a press answer would be, is, is a psychiatrist really know what's wrong? Has he really listened to him and knows what he's experiencing? Has he tried closing Because, you know, at least then you know that he's had the most Powerful medication that's available. Uh, so, so that what medication? Closing. Okay. Uh, I think many of you have you got patients like closing. It's, it's, mm -hmm. um, it's the most effective antipsychotic by a substantial margin, but it's also the most difficult to prescribe. Uh, it, uh, it's, it's sort of unfair that. The best medication has the worst side effects. You know, it didn't have to be that way. Uh, but uh, you know, you know, you know. So, so I would make sure that he's had aggressive treatment. But then I, I, I think the goal has to be to help him to live better with those symptoms. You know, you know, it could be that something like uh, cognitive behavior therapy would help. There are all these other things that people are trying. There are. I have a whole list. But I won't show it now, the different psychotherapies that have been tried. And my belief is that if you match it, and I don't think, you know, like there's metacognitive training for delusions and things like that, many of these things actually work on certain people. Uh, and, and, and maybe this person would be helped by them. Or maybe they wouldn't go away, but you feel less stressed by them. Sometimes that, that's the best we can do. Yeah, yeah, and, and, and at times, you know, you know, you know, I, I, I just wish psychiatrists would stop adding things that don't work. And just give the, you know, you know, they feel they have to do something. And, and sometimes it's really helping that person, you know, you know, through empathy and other things to live with symptoms that we really can't manage yet. Uh, and, uh, and, and you know it feels terrible uh, as a, you know and, and I, I don't and I'm not talking about giving up I'm talking about the process of, of helping somebody live better because as you probably know there are you know a lot of people hallucinate and uh, it's not that uncommon and and it's not inconsistent with a very full life uh, for some people. Uh, there's an interesting story of a, it's a TED talk by a, a woman from Britain who, uh, you know, you know, she went to his, uh, her primary care doctor talking about uh, 
how she had been abused as a child, she was anxious and depressed, and she hears voices. And then the, the voices, the, the clinician was focused on the voices, which were the least of her problems. <laughs> uh, and she continued to live with the voices, and she became a psychologist that still hears voices. And she even jokes that when she was taking her exam, the voices were whispering the answers to the Sometimes you can uh, help people by demystifying symptoms and uh, not, you know, you know, trying to do things that don't work in order to make them go away. Uh, the, uh, so the question in here is, is about genetic testing. Uh, you know, you know, there's there are a lot of companies that are promoting genetic testing, and uh, uh, for uh, for drugs in psychiatry, there are. Uh, no genetic tests that'll tell you which antidepressant or which mood stabilizer is best. What, in theory, they could say is uh, they look at uh, whether somebody is a very uh, rapidly metabolizes a drug so that you need more, or is a very inefficient metabolizer so you uh, would uh, try to keep so the person would need more drug. Uh, that, in theory, makes sense, and that's how they market what they have now. Nobody has ever shown that it improves outcomes. So uh, in, in my mind, it's a, uh, I, I don't like seeing health systems wasting money on it and so it's better for them. That's my opinion, but it's one in which I have some confidence. Uh, uh, I, I, I just don't think it's worth the, the I mean, if somebody orders that you have it, you know, you know, then, then you, you might sort of bias you towards one rather the other. But I don't think it's ever been shown in, in looking at whether it improves outcomes, and it, it's just never been shown in psychiatry. Let me show you. I, 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 I've got a medication slide. I, I, I want you to feel like you're getting your money's worth. Uh, so I don't know if you can see it. So these are the common medications that are used to treat psychosis, and. Uh, to me, the way you select a drug is you, uh, there's only one of them that, oh, well, well, this just, well, I won't go with that. There's only one of them that differs in effectiveness, and that's clozapine. All the others, there's no reason to think that one is more effective than the other. I mean, I have a particular bias. I don't that that some seem a little stronger than the other, but I, I wouldn't take it too seriously. Their side effects differ enormously. Uh, and uh, so you go by what you're afraid of. I, I mean, uh, on, on a first episode uh, person, you know, man or woman, who's really, you know, worried about their appearance, I would never use a drug associated with a lot of weight gain, like a lancetine. Uh, it's, you know, it works for some people. So, so you go by what you're afraid of. We, uh, some medications are overly sedating, but some patients like a little bit of sedation. So, so I, I would sort of match it to what the, uh, you, know, you know, what's available on the formulary. And, and the only other difference is uh, some of these drugs, uh, you know, aripiprazole and, and paliperidone and uh, paldol are, are, are available as LAIs, uh, long-acting.
injectables where you could uh, take injection, you know, you know, once a month or even less often than that in some places. And uh, I, I, I believe in those drugs. Uh, they, uh, for some patients, they make all the difference. Many people are unreliable pill takers. Uh, so, you know, you know, you know, we, uh, uh, but, but again, it's the side effects that, uh, to me, would make the choice, unless you thought that a long-acting injectable was the right drug, in which case you would probably, well, I mean, I'd almost never start anyone on Caloperidol anymore, uh, but uh, not that it doesn't work, but, uh, but, but our group is all of Caloperidol. You know, you know, Vega or Zolfi, start them on oral with the idea that they could go on a long acting drug later on. Collatin is a, uh, it's a hormone, and it, uh, uh, it, uh, you know, you know, after a woman uh, gives birth, it uh, goes way up, you know, uh, so that they'll lactate, so so that they'll uh, have milk. It's uh, it also is involved with sexual function. So uh, some antipsychotics, haloperidone in particular, uh, and risperidone, really raise prolactin a substantial amount. And you and, and some uh, women will start having uh, milk coming out of their breasts uh, from if you ask them, if you don't want that. Men will actually develop breasts. So it's a uh, it's a side effect. It's, it's, it doesn't happen all the time, but it's something to be concerned. It also probably impairs sexual function. Now, uh, if you talk about young men, what are one of the reasons why they stop taking their antipsychotics? Because they take an erection. Uh, I mean, that's what young men seem to be concerned about. Uh, so, you know, uh, the, it's, it's really important, uh, you know, uh, again, if somebody is refusing medications, uh, that is always something to bring up. So to, to, to make sure, because that's something that people don't, they don't go to their psychiatrist complaining about it as, as much as they probably should. You know, I've only got a few minutes, and I don't want to end on like a down note. When Clozapine first came out, I really thought that the world was changing uh, and that these new medications would really be much better. And, uh, you, know, you, know, you know, to me, uh, I'm, I'm just not sure that any, all of these medications work. You know, you know they're all effective. Uh, there's not one that I think that stands out from the others. Uh, uh, so I, I, I don't, uh, I'm, it's not a satisfying answer. There, there's research and there are a number of very promising things that work with different, all these drugs work with single mechanism when they work on dopamine in the brain. And uh, there are new drugs that, that don't and uh, they're, they're in development. But right now, none of them have been approved and I don't see anything changing dramatically in the next year. So the question is, can you make someone take an antipsychotic if they're gravely disabled? And uh, I think that you have, have any of you had the experience with outpatients? Uh, yeah, if, if they're concerned, and, uh, but, but, but can you force them? 